Have you ever want to partner with a trillion dollar company and pursue your passions at the same time? If so, you're definitely in the right place. Welcome to Rising High with Ananya Dugar. Today, we will be speaking to Ned Sahin, the founder and CEO of BrainPower. Ned is an award-winning neuroscientist and entrepreneur who developed the technology for Google Glasses. Yes, I said it, Google Glasses. This is a Google brand of augmented reality glasses that enables people to remove distractions and focus on what's important. BrainPower has created multiple apps to motivate users with ADHD and autism to develop social as well as emotional skills. Ned has been recognized as Boston Journal's 40 on 40, MedTech's 50 on Fire, and has been covered in hundreds of media articles, including Forbes, NBC, and Wired, to name a few. Hi, Ned. It's such a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So just to dive in straight to your education, you've spent a lot of time all around the world studying and learning the intricacies of the mind, from Williams to Harvard to MIT and then to Oxford. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey in education? Thank you. So yes, my PhD is in cognitive neuroscience. I also did an undergrad and postdoc and master's in roughly that field, how the brain works, and specifically how it works to give rise to the things that we as humans find very special, our cognition, our, our mind, in a sense. And I focused on language and social communication. Much later, I've gotten into a domain that relates partially to language through autism, but I didn't start studying the neuroscience of autism. It actually came after I decided to be an entrepreneur. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So what intrigued you about autism? Did you have a personal story or was it something that you just came across and thought, you know what, I can impact this industry? I have no personal story with autism. I thought I could make an enormous impact if some of my wild ideas proved true, we could build a team who could implement something that had never been implemented before. I thought that there would be a multiplicative impact that millions of people out there on the autism spectrum have so much more ability than is recognized. And yet some of that gets blocked by differences in how they communicate socially and some degree how they think and process information. So that sounds like an interface problem, right? Between these two sets of people. And there was this new interface, Google Glass. I was thinking about something clever and neuroscientific to do with it. And had this epiphany that if it could supplement our own brain's interface and our own social interface, then it could be a little bit of that translation zone in real time to help people with autism communicate to what are called neurotypical people. It's so fascinating that you created this technology to help people with autism. Um, It's almost like having a virtual assistant to help you understand and read what other people are thinking better. So what was the transition between being in academia and then switching to becoming a full-fledged entrepreneur? You mean after my undergrad and master's and PhD and postdoc and fellowship continuously in academic research labs and clinical research labs, and then suddenly changing instead of becoming a professor? Along the way, I kept feeling more and more of a certain ennui, a certain sense that I couldn't directly help people in their daily lives. 
And yet knowledge gathering and pure knowledge products are supremely important, I think all the more so today during an anti-intellectual time in America and elsewhere in the world. Also, applying that knowledge to people's daily lives. Oftentimes, those are different people who do that. I felt a calling myself to try and so far have been able to take uh, the technology, as they say, from bench to bedside. So the transition happened in a way naturally because I was more and more entrepreneurial inclined over time, but in a way very suddenly I attended a seminar at MIT where I had done my master's and this was years later, the former department chair had just become the chair of an autism research center at MIT. I spent a day listening to all the preambles to all the scientific talks. It was those preambles that struck me because they painted a picture that was horrendous, where people wait a year to get a diagnosis. The diagnosis is vague. It sets up their lifetime of services or lack of services where there's no cure once something is called a condition and people are underserved. 80% of people on the spectrum are unemployed, even if they have a college degree and skills to contribute. So it was a really bleak picture. And I saw maybe amateurishly that there could be ways to computerize and instrument their ways of interacting with other people and to give the real-time feedback and coaching and kind of a game that turns interacting with others into a fun experience and one that can be tracked numerically. So that's what I ended up doing with Google Glass and so far it's been a success. I'll also say that that moment was precipitated. I said I came back to MIT. Well, where had I gone? First, I had gone to Harvard for the PhD and then to California for postdoc. But then I went around the world for a year with no phone. And for you millennials and such out there thinking about leaving somewhere without your head, your kidney, or your phone, which are all equally attached to you in some sense, I traveled around the world in 23 countries for a year with no phone, no wireless device, nothing. Wow, so returning back from this all around the world expedition, could you tell us a little bit more about your journey with neuroscience and actually creating brain power? Yeah, it was very exciting. I mean, the travel was amazing, so many epiphanies, and then the year ended, and I had basically accelerated by possibly 10 years my own personal drive and desire to take the advanced neuroscience that I had learned and turn it into something that could help. And I'd also seen people around the world who struggled and people with special needs struggle more kind of the further you get away from America and a few advanced parts of the world. And it's deeply stigmatized and anything with mental health is usually hidden and there aren't necessarily the resources that we have here. And in fact, we don't even have much here for certain conditions or differences of mind. So it was a no-brainer. I needed to help people express the power of their brain. And so I founded the company called Brain Power. I love that. Like, I really like your mission. And I really appreciate you guys going out of your way and making an impact in this world. So from what I understand, any technology product company requires a lot of capital and funding to start with the development manufacturing. How did you raise capital? Yeah, that's a good question. And 
we have been very lucky and also produced fine work so that that helps accelerate the luck we have been funded by government grants many millions of dollars of very very competitive grants we just submitted a new grant application this week and for which i didn't sleep for at least a week and it takes months to write these things the government wants to know that they're investing in a project that will work and will have a lifespan after that and will have practical use thank you so much for sharing this alternative method of raising capital um I think most people believe that the only way to jumpstart their business is through raising capital by giving up equity to venture capitalists or taking the risky route of raising debt from traditional banks. But we learned from you that there is a third option of government funding and applying for grants. One thing that you've talked about in your previous interviews is hiring youngsters to make sure that the business remains innovative and competitive. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that mindset? We've had interns all along, I believe, deeply in mentorship. And it's amazing when you have a young, bright person who's on a mission, who hasn't quite learned the meaning of the word impossible yet, and the stagnation of the workplace where it has to be fit between nine and five, otherwise you disappear in a puff of smoke and figure out how to do it next week. And how many vacation days you have left and all that waste that's in the environment it's not there with these young eager motivated folks so that gave us uh, always a continuous rejuvenation and excitement and uh, is more economically feasible and is beneficial to both sides and for training and we've actually been able to take something from the science lab and into the world and generate revenue so that also fuels us and that fuels us in a very organic and real way, proving that there is value for society. I would completely agree. I think the enthusiasm and excitement in Dawn's have is unparalleled. So with regard to Google, what made you believe that the culture and the mission of Google aligned with your goals for the product? Google really, truly acts the way they say they do they have a mission focused culture it's in every moment it's in every meeting it's on every wall in every bathroom there are signs reminding you to do some good thing teaching you something about android code or chaucer or methods of recycling there's always something cool and interesting and heady and cerebral on the bathroom walls i just find that as a neat little moment where it's clearly real and clearly personal and private and not meant for external people because these are buildings that you're absolutely not allowed into unless you're deeply invited. What was it like to partner with Google at such a wide stage, having Google Glasses accessible to the general public? Google Glass was intended more for your emails, photos and sharing, and maybe GPS directions from your online of site. But we took it so much further. We measured blink rate and autonomic neurological changes and a transient level in people. We give feedback on where to look and how to understand whether the other person is happy or bored with you. We use the sensors on board as biomarker generators. So Google never intended any of that. And the more of that we did, the more they thought, wow, these guys are cool and they're doing something that's on mission, so we'll help them. And Google has helped us at every stage. 
when you actually when you asked about funding, Google has accelerated us and made it possible in many ways from enabling our developers to, to giving us various types of grants. They took a, a bet on bringing the computational interface from down here somewhere in a tablet or a phone up to where we naturally interact with the world. You know, it's in your line of sight to the world. So it takes the concept of interacting with a computer out of the way of doing what we do in the world. Your tablet might not block your vision, but it causes you to look down and away from the world. And a heads up display literally keeps you heads up, hands free and engaged with other people. A lot of people criticize Google for having several failed projects. What are your thoughts on that? I've always observed and observed how people act and interact, that it's about mission first. Most Google projects fail is one way to look at it. And writers love to talk about that. But another way of looking at it is most Google products and projects are about helping or doing something whiz-bang cool. And not all of it needs to make money primarily, but they might do things like float balloons over Africa to give free internet. They might do things like set up disaster recovery sites so that people in any major human disaster that has happened in the last many years uh, can find family members and trace ways to save zones. I mean, they do a lot of interesting things. And we use it to give real-time prompting even to help someone experience something he or she's never experienced before and become comfortable with that through exposure therapy. So how did you get in touch or what was the process of reaching Google to get to the stage that you're currently at? I scrapped and climbed. I went to the center to pick up Google Glass and I met people there and I wanted to know how does, how does this really work? Who are you guys? What's behind this, this really, really plush showroom? And they said, well, there's this developer relations thing going on tonight. I'm not a developer, but I showed up. I met the key person, had that person communicate me to the next key person. And within weeks, met the new head of the whole Glass program. On the day that she started, Ivy Ross, who is fantastic, and from there expanded even further and created more and more of this partnership. And when we needed them, I demanded, and they came through to help us navigate a system and a set of servers and set of services that wasn't really designed to do what we were pushing it to do and they were forthcoming and did it but so that partnership was on you know, blood sweat and tears but luckily not not tears just really hard work and excitement and showing mission forward work i'll also point out you know you're asking the question how did it happen for me and that's an answer but if i could derive something from that for others who are listening and are entrepreneurially minded, well, certainly don't ask, don't get, right? So put it out there, ask for it, be bold. Another thing is show your earnest purpose. And if that's at all within your realm, then that often gets rewarded. And another thing would be, oh yeah, make a lot of friends and contacts when you're dealing with large organizations. Big companies have low loyalty. People are there for their paycheck sometimes. Google is a little better, but nonetheless, people are there. They're a person under a person, under person, a person in a hierarchy. And especially these days uh, with millennials, it's all about how can I get training? Who's my mentor? What's my professional development stuff? And 
so they're off like a shot in an instant when there's a better job or something else going on. So make 15 contacts, not one. I don't mean two instead of one. I mean 15 because 11 of them will have a new job at a new company the next year. So that way you can keep a continuity. Thank you for such great advice. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has been waiting for this moment. Going off to your last point, what is your strategy to managing such a future-focused organization? I'm a first-time CEO, so I'm still learning on the job. I think it's important to have firm purpose and direction. I think there is a difficulty because direction, if you are, for instance, steering a ship, direction is value-based. It's not a compass direction. Sometimes there's a confusion of, wait, you just changed the direction. No, the direction is towards the summit, but we might completely change if we're gonna climb a glacier or pass through a tarn on a kayak and go up the other side, but they're the same direction. In a fast and agile company, it might seem like it's changing. And so I'd say on the one hand, show purpose, show direction, try for transparency. On the other hand, know that it's, it's difficult sometimes and the amount of uncertainty that a, an entrepreneur has to deal with every day, like, oh no, they could just turn off the server and everything's gone. Oh no, completely different market dynamics, completely change everything. But that's what we do, that's our job. But others in the company, that's not their job. And that's not usually their predilection for, they don't have as much of a tolerance for that. And it's just not the job. So there is a, something that I'm still learning about how much of the uncertainty to share and how much to pretend that there's a straight line, east-west line from here to there, and be the one nonetheless to go up and around the mountains to get there. I completely agree. I think you've summarized the role of an entrepreneur very well. Um, it is important just to steer the ship in a direction and focus on strategy. What would you say is your greatest failure as an entrepreneur or just in life? You know, sometimes I'm not sure that I even know what my greatest failure is because some things won't seem as big a failure to me and might be. And also, I don't know how it would play out over the years. What I did is often, often people ask, you know, what, what's your biggest failure? And it's usually a thing that you did. It's easier to quantify. It's much more likely to be something I didn't do. And I may not know it until the next merry-go-round. I have some inkling now, a good few years into this, of things I didn't do early on that would have sped us along or uh, change things or improved product or culture. But, you know, maybe the next time or at the next level of the company, I'll really realize what I didn't do that was the bigger failure. That's very interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Where do you see brain power in the next five years? Where do you see it going? What's your aspiration for it? Brain power is a mix between a company and a nonprofit and a mission and well-grounded scientific hope. So it feels different than most companies. And those who really understand it, align with it, and after years and years of hard work, really feel a love for it and with it. I want, over the next five years, to try to keep some semblance of that 
scrappy, mission-focused, scientific, and practical way. And yet, of course, mature things and grow things and develop tons of processes and procedures and all those things that keep things stable and predictable for people. So how to do both. It's a matter of growing the right people and uh, growing their careers and establishing both the constancy and the constant of change. But in terms of content, I think of us as a mental health, mental well-being company. It's autism now and some ADHD, but it also extends. We've done some work with traumatic brain injury, concussions. I think the way forward is to end up in a larger part of the market, both in the education space and home mental well-being space, and to expand by adjacent use case something that's very similar that's adjacent where the technology is similar and the customer demand is similar and yet different so if people with depression or sleep disorders or worrying about the brain health of their child but i would like to be in the domain of invisible brain differences that usually get in the way of having the best life one could have that's beautiful thank you so much for sharing that with me what do you think has been the greatest lifestyle shift or change over the last year or so, especially considering the fact that you and your wife are both managing large-scale businesses under the same roof? It's wonderful to run a company and have a wife who's running a company. We're a dual CEO couple, and you might think we talk business all the time. We don't. We are humans, and we enjoy our snugly human time, and meanwhile, go off and run these two companies. And hers is much, much larger than mine. One time we were traveling in Japan and an entrepreneurial friend of mine invited us to a forum where we were the keynote speakers as a pair talking about being a dual CEO couple. That's particularly rare in Japan just by the nature of how women pursue work. So we are I'm a completely distributed company and she temporarily is. So now, we can have an intense work day, back-to-back Zoom calls, working through the night, but we can also just pass each other on the stairs in our home in small moments in between Zoom calls and have that wonderful nourishing feeling of your favorite person in life. That's really cute. If you could go back to your college days, your undergrad at Williams, what is one thing that you would do differently It's not what comes to mind. You ask about my college and what would I do differently. What I really want is to do it again. I loved it so much and I'm smarter now and it would be fun. I don't know if I'm smart enough to get back in because it keeps getting, uh, you know, Williams keeps getting rated as the top college in the country and usually as a small college category, but oftentimes in the combined category. So top above Harvard. Any case, It was fun and I have such collegiality and camaraderie with my friend group from there, especially on the crew team. And I just want to go back and do it again and have have the wisdom from now. That's really cool. So on our closing note, you're very passionate about traveling. If you could travel to one place right now, where would it be and why? You're asking where I would like to travel most right now. I usually defer away from the single one favorite. And when I did the travel in 23 countries afterward, 
people would ask, well, okay, so what was your favorite one? And I'd ask, okay, well, who's your favorite family member? Or what's your favorite body part? You see, it's kind of hard to, to say. And because they work in concert and they have different purposes and um, you don't want to insult your mom by not saying she's your favorite. And then yet, what about, what about, it's just sort of a funny question. But I understand it's, it's a common type of question. It makes sense. And so with travel in that year, when people asked, what was your favorite country? I'd say the Philippines was my favorite for understanding people and culture. And it's just really, really immersed experience I had there spending zero time with white people and totally immersed and interesting. But Slovakia is one of my favorite for being in a historical European, in that case, country, and yet not the usual beaten path. Everyone goes to Prague. And Belgium happens to have a confluence of a lot of foods that I really enjoy and are not too proud, like French, to fly in foods from, from elsewhere. And Turkey is my, my parents' native country and is absolutely beautiful. The food is amazing. It is literally probably the answer to your question where I'd want to go right now because I have people in place and familiar context waiting for me there and it's so beautiful and this is the best time to go but then thailand i can't say this as a turk but i will that maybe they have the best food in the world or it certainly competes and i want to go to some small village in thailand and get home-cooked food by just some lady who's been cooking for absolutely ages with food that she or, or, or he grows across the street in a mini farm. So there are places I want to go just based on that trip. And then there are places that I haven't been, um, but I'd love to explore a volcano or the Galapagos or do some ice venturing near one of the poles. So maybe that tells you more about me and predilections than picking one. I love that. And I've been dying to go to Turkey. My parents keep going to Cappadocia and they, they take so many pictures there. And I'm just like, that's romantic, but I think you should take us as well now. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, keep lobbying for that. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and you'll probably love the food. Most people do. Yeah, I definitely would. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks.